This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. My name is Tracy Pham. I'm Tiffany Pham. And we are the second generation of Red Boat Fish Sauce. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you both for agreeing to come on. Uh, we had your father uh, come on uh, a few weeks ago, and... I really was hoping that I would have you both come on to the podcast because uh, it's very important to hear the second generation's uh, point of view. So thank you for coming on. We are very happy to be here. Very excited that we got to connect. Awesome. So let me start with either one of you. Uh, what were you doing before you got involved with your dad's business? Before I joined Red Boat, I was in the tech world. I was doing sales operations, which no one actually knows what that means. <laughs> uh, but I was in the tech world for about seven years, and I was also running uh, my own jujitsu school. So I had two full-time jobs before starting at Red Boat. And for me, I was working at Sacramento International Airport as an environmental scientist for about two years before I started at Red Boat. I initially majored in environmental science, so I was managing the airport's recycling program for restaurants. Now, for everybody listening, uh, these two ladies sound very serious right now, but they are not. <laughs> <laughs> they are not. We got to, like, break the veneer here. because <laughs> We have our professional face on, okay, Kenneth? <laughs> I know. I'm like, this is not who I, this is not who I know. I'm like, you guys party. We partied. Um, so yeah, just to break the ice here, um, they are not as serious as they sound, but that being said, you, we could all hear the seriousness of the work that you did previously getting to Red Boat. So, so much respect for you both for having previous lives before that. 
I was talking about this issue of second generation and legacy building and all of this before we got in the podcast. I come from um, such shame in all kinds of departments in my life, being Vietnamese and second generation window coverings sort of family. Do you both live with any sort of baggage that you are carrying on your father's legacy? Or is it the opposite of what I went through growing up? I wouldn't say there's baggage um, to carry on his legacy. I think it just took us some time to get to that point where we wanted to carry on his legacy. This is going to sound terrible, but <laughs> it. Uh, I think one of the questions that you asked our dad is, how did you convince your kids to work with you? And to be honest, the more convincing that he tried to do, the less we wanted to work at the family business because no. that's just how it is. Like as kids growing up, we got, I butted heads a lot with my dad. And so the thought of wanting to join him in the family business uh, was a hard no at the beginning. But I think it took a bit of getting older. And also, <laughs> this is the part where it sounds terrible, is I had to be at a very low point in my career to <laughs> consider <laughs> the switch. Because, well, I had just started working at Salesforce, which is a really highly rated place to work. So I was excited. But nine months into the job, I was like, this is not what I expected. I got bored. On top of that, I was commuting into the city which is not ideal. And on top of that, I would have to go teach jujitsu after that job, after the long commute. And so it was during that time that Tiffany and I took the idea of joining the family business seriously. Yeah, I think Tracy and I had pretty, one, we were always pretty close growing up. I think it was actually during jujitsu that we got really, really close as sisters. And that was maybe around 2012. So right before I was going off to high school. But I think we are similar off in this college, off to college. <laughs> so it was we were really similar in that um, I had similar feelings where, of course, when you're younger, you know, you don't want you want to be independent. You want to be separate from your family, uh, which is ironic because our dad was always emphasizing, oh, being close to family is really important. Having this family time is really, really important. But of course, when you're growing up, you don't fully understand or you're, you're not necessarily understanding where your parents are coming from when they mention that. And you don't hold the full weight and depth of what that means to your parents. So I think just like every teenager or every young adult growing up, you just want to become your own your own person, mm -hmm. your own self. And for me, that was wanting to have a positive impact on the world. And that's why I majored in environmental science. To me, it was important that I went into work that left a positive impact. It's pretty common in backpacking. Or if you do any backpacking, they mentioned leave no trace. So I felt like I had that similar ethos of, what I, what I do, I want to have it be important to, to me and then also just have that positive impact. Um, so I think that's kind of where I separated from what my dad was doing and also because I didn't fully understand the work that he was doing culturally with mm -hmm. Red Boat and building a fish sauce brand that's recognizable to so many people, uh, not just within the Vietnamese community, but outside the Vietnamese community. So for me, it was just a matter of what Tracy was saying. I wanted to, I wanted to do my own thing. I needed to come to that decision for working at Red Boat on my own. And similar to Tracy, 
the work that I was doing at the airport, I didn't feel like it had that impact that I was really looking for. And it was just, it was really different than what I was expecting. So um, I think it was during that time, Tracy and I were both talking, we would have uh, re like regular calls after work, Tracy was commuting on public transit, I was driving home, and we'd both kind of talk about how, man, we're not really happy with what we're doing. We were doing. talking about how shitty our jobs were with <laughs> <Wow>. Kenneth. <laughs> That's and I think we just had that realization. Wow. You know, our dad's not getting any younger. Um, we are seeing all the work that he was doing too, just in terms of people that I work with. When I'd of course just mentioned passing by, I was like, Oh, my, my dad started red boat. Here's what he do. Here's what he's doing. People that I thought would not care about fish sauce at all. were like, Oh my gosh, this is what your dad is doing. And they're like, wow, this is so cool. So I think it was during those times I realized the impact that he was having just um, for the for Vietnamese culture in general. <clears throat> and so because of that, Tracy and I were thinking, okay, we're young. Let's let's see what it's like working for our dad. Um, if we can't do this, then we can always pivot back to to our careers. But I think since then we've come to the realization that. Uh, at least for me, going back to wanting to have that positive impact, having my work be meaningful, um, even though it's not on the environmental side, I found that Red Boat does the same thing. It just happens more on Vietnamese culture side where we're having that impact. When I think about my father starting a business with myself and my brother and my mom uh, over 25 years ago, I think about how back ass backwards like my dad was doing shit in vietnam i mean like horribly <laughs> wrong he was never working at apple he was never an engineer he was just like this artist who had some technical understanding of of making things you know he's like kind of da vinci but like really add da vinci um and when i think about your father and his training at apple and being an engineer for all those years and then for you two to come and work alongside with him are there things where you were like what the fuck like how did you figure this out or you got this all wrong or did you stand in admiration like holy shit like we had no idea you were this smart like what was the <laughs> you know, because maybe there, not in those words well, there, there is a there is a mark twain saying you know do you guys know this saying like mark twain said when i was uh 18 my father was such a dumbass and then when i turned 21 i can't believe how much he learned in three years which means he actually you know at 21 became a lot more wise to the world his father wasn't the one who learned all that shit in three years he just came and so with that sort of like that thinking i wonder what you both uh, kind of saw like when you started actually working with them because you, when you grow up with your father there's things that you think you know about them but then when you start working alongside you're like wait there's a genius and a brilliance but there's also this other so I want to hear all of it and what that initial reaction was like when you started working with him so uh when I first started um I think what I had an appreciation for is one the scale of how did he figure out one how to make fish sauce and then the logistics of bringing it here and then opening his own bottling line and investing in the equipment to do all that um was very impressive i don't know how he did it um and i think the other thing that i was really impressed by is watching how he builds relationships with people 
that one was most surprising to me because I I watch how he interacts with the people back in Vietnam and even just with the chef community here in the US. It's very natural. Like my dad is a very charming guy and I didn't fully appreciate that until I witnessed it in action because like he says, <laughs> I would not consider my dad charming as a as a kid. <laughs> That's just not a, a quality that I, you're I would embarrassed. Yeah, you're, you're embarrassed. embarrassed. Exactly. We, all, we all are, right? Yeah. yeah. So those, I think those two things for me are things that I appreciated. And then I'll let. Yeah. I think for me, I went through something similar to you, Ken, where I was like, man, I'm so embarrassed by my dad. It's like, why is he doing what he's doing? But I think this also comes down to a cultural thing too, right? Mm. Where, I mean, Tracy and I were both born in the U.S. Was, we were surrounded by American culture. But I think as we started working longer at Red Boat, I had the realization a lot of like his actions are guided by his culture too. growing up in Vietnam. So as an example, just what Tracy was saying about relationships with people and building those relationships. I remember my dad as the businessman that he is always negotiating and this would be something i'd be so embarrassed about right because it's not negotiation is of course like part part of american culture but not not truly not the same way that it is for vietnamese people right so i remember there'd be times when we'd be working with vendors or working with other folks and be like okay what do you think about this price (laughs) and i'd be like no dad no you're going to offend people like you can't do this but then I think it was going back to Vietnam and really seeing him mm-hmm. in his element working in Vietnam. That's when I think I had an appreciation for for the work that he does and his line of thinking. And I think that working at Red Boat allowed us to get closer to him, too, and just understand his mindset and how he views things. I I don't think that if we chose to stay in our in our previous careers we'd have that same like understanding and appreciation for my dad it's it's the way that he has that long-term thinking that i think i I learned to appreciate and respect uh uh, yes around the negotiating thing being embarrassing so i i finished my business school program last year and i took a family business class and in this family business class on the first day they gave the top five reasons why family businesses are successful. And the number two reason is because they are frugal. And I just died because I was like, oh my God, I can't show this to my dad. <laughs> He's right. And then uh, I did I did end up telling him that. And he was like, well, you didn't need to go to business school just to figure that out. I could have told you that on my own. <laughs> you know, the idea of us learning from the outside world uh, in the US and the actual hard knocks that our parents come to the table with are very different. And the profit, not the profit margin, but the profit like the Messiah, there's a, a funny saying my dad used to always say, like he's, he's like, you never appreciate the profit inside your family. You know, I'm a prophet. You don't appreciate the profit of walking amongst you, you know, and it's true. It's like, it's hard to respect our fathers when they are, you know, we grew up with them and we just like, kind of, but then when you realize like the kind of impact that your father made, and that's why I, I really cherish the fact that you two are doing it and talking to me about it and being open about that experience because 
um, more and more, I feel like the American culture is so based on individualism that we don't uh, cherish this idea of taking over businesses just like the Japanese. You know, and I talk to people all the time on the podcast about this. Sword makers in Japan, mochi makers, you know, sake makers, 300-year businesses, 400-year corporations, constant, like, centuries old of tradition of uh, father, son, daughter, taking over the businesses and perfecting the business over many iterations. And that's why I really respect the second, second generation uh, work that you guys are doing. Yeah, I think the idea of Redboat being owned and operated by someone who wasn't a fam, just it didn't sit right with us. That was, I think, the other yeah realization that we had because my dad at the time he he did consider selling um you know like to get paid off for all the hard work that he's done um but it didn't it didn't sit right with us for yeah i think there's there was something about seeing all the work that he put in and and knowing all the effort that it took just to get um especially first first press fish sauce to the US, it it seemed, yeah, it didn't sit right that there was there might be someone else who would take over like a larger corporation. And I think that was also a big portion of why Tracy and I decided to to step in and work with my dad. Now for all of these second generation uh, young uh, entrepreneurs that are thinking about taking over their family businesses, what do you think you brought to the table for Redboat? as in the transition i'm not saying that there's a full transition i don't know about that any of that stuff i'm just saying in my head what do you think you brought to the table as a second generation member of uh, red boat our dad has a very entre entrepreneurial mindset mm -hmm. right in terms of starting businesses he has all these fantastic ideas for for new things to create but at the same time, there's also the the managing, right? And this and the growth of it as well. So I think that's where I view our work in terms of how do we sustain this? How yeah. do we keep it keep it growing to a larger scale? How can we continue this on as a legacy? So I view our work as taking his original idea and seeing what we can do to continue growing it. Yeah, I it's funny because I was reflecting on the first few years of me working at the business and it felt very reactive in, in that we were just doing. We didn't have any long-term goals. We didn't have a vision on where we wanted to take the company. It wasn't until I would say last year that we really sat down, um, like the siblings, we have a brother as well. The three of us sat down and thought, where do we want to be in 10 years and how do we get there? And so I think having that mindset um, and also just bringing in more structure, hiring people, spending a little bit of money, even though my dad didn't like it, uh, it makes a big difference because you can't do everything on your own. Like you definitely need to other people's help. So I think that's, yeah, that's to, what we bring. To Tracy's point too, I think it's, because he was operating right as like the small business just starting out at the very beginning it was my it was my dad and maybe like a handful of even less than a handful of relatives not too many relatives starting it out and i think with that mentality it's hard when you have such a limited headcount 
there's only so much you can do. So I think I have to credit Tracy uh, last year to getting us all together, uh, us and our brother, and really having that brainstorming session of, okay, where, where do we want to take this? And what do we see in our future? It's very older childlike, oldest child vibes. <laughs> uh, you're the oldest and is your brother in the middle? Yes, he is. I remember asking you a while back ago about that. Um, but does that mean as the oldest that you make the decisions? I mean, is your father saying, hey, as the oldest, I, I put the crown on you to make the decisions? Or is it pretty democratic? Because that's not the way normally Asian families work, right? I mean, how does it work? I think it's pretty democratic. I've had a few, a few people ask, oh, who's going to become the CEO? Is it you? Because you're the oldest. But yeah. I don't feel any tie to that title. Um, so yeah, it is. I think it is pretty democratic. We've we've gotten better about um, communicating with each other. Um, so that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, I think well, actually one big learning lesson that I had is of course, your family is always going to stay your family, right? In some sense, where the dynamics that we had prior to working together, mm -hmm. of course, they're going to play out, right? When we're all working together in terms of our dad's always going to be our dad, he's going to be our boss too. <laughs> so how do we feel in terms of our dad telling us what to do yeah. when we have, especially if we're thinking of ourselves, right? Still as, as that younger child who like, I don't like being told what to do. Yeah. I think it took a lot of stepping back from that um in, in order for us all to work together so we do stay pretty pretty democratic and i think that's something that uh when we talked about too about how we would all work together that's something that we came to the conclusion it's like we want we want everyone's opinion we don't want someone to feel left out yeah. in some ways we still try to you know stay within our roles but i think what's been really helpful actually is because we all do slightly different things my brother that handles production, Tracy handles marketing, and then Asian distributor sales, I handle mainstream sales, food safety. With all of these different skills and all of what we're doing, by being cohesive and all working together and having and making sure everyone's opinion is weighted equally, I think that that makes a big difference in being able to continue to grow. You know, if we think about the legacy businesses that I talked about, like in Japan, like hundreds of years, we don't have a whole lot of that in Vietnam, do we? I, I, I'm completely ignorant. It's a question that I am searching for answers. Do we have a hundred year business in Vietnam uh, that you know about or that both of you have interacted with in places like Phu Quoc or even Hanoi or Saigon? I can think of maybe two. Um, I was back in Hanoi with my dad. I think this was in August. And we visited a painter who did very traditional paintings. I forget. Do you know what it's called? Like the lion painting? I can't remember. It's a very old uh, process, what he follows. And he is one of the last known living um, painters who do that traditional artwork. Um, but he was saying that his son, I think, is going to take over uh, after he's done. But, you know, his son is still in training. That's that's the only one that comes to mind. And, and did he take over his father's uh, work? Is he like the next, like the middle generation? I believe so. Yeah. And this is important for me because uh, Nick Mum is a very 
it's a very niche thing to make. I mean, you you can't just go and set up this thing anywhere in the world or anywhere in Vietnam and not, you know, any group of people can do this. That's just my belief, right? So I think 200 years from now, when we're talking to the fifth generation of Red Boat family members to pull up this digitized avatar of us talking about this is going to be so fascinating if you think about it. It's cool. This will this will be our little time capsule. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's uh, you know, can you imagine if we got to pull into some conversation that the Japanese were talking about their processes, you know, of ink making or something like that from 400 years ago? Because there's a there's ink makers, blocks of inks that they make. They step on it and they make it from charcoal and dripping oil uh, burning. And I talked to uh, Daniel from Somkai about mm. these different processes. And it is so fascinating that w when they talk about their processes, we, you know, compare our legacies of, of, of our work. Um, it's, it's not there yet, but we are thinking about this stuff now as a result of, you know, not having to deal with war. So you too are going to carry this sort of legacy of making this very specialized thing. Now, that all being said, how difficult is sort of like the environment, the ecosystem of the ocean to carry on this legacy? I'll let the environmental specialist answer that question. <laughs> yeah, it, it is true. It, it is pretty difficult. I think just as as our climate is changing, um, there's of course going to be impacts. I think the other interesting thing too has to do with um, a country's economic development and what that means in terms of how it has an impact on the environment too. I think it's pretty easy in the US after we've gone through our industrial era to say, oh, other countries maybe shouldn't do this, right? Now that we've reached our point of economic development, we can say like, okay, no, no more, right? So it's always, uh, it's really not clear, right? It's it's pretty blurry. It's a really complex issue in terms of like, how can we still run as run businesses? How can people still make a living without having such a difficult impact on the environment? Um, in terms of how we'll operate as time goes on, I think this is something that I've been thinking about. This has been like, on the back burner as a project for me in terms of having red boat set up as a sustainable fishery. So putting in the effort to uh, get certain certifications where we are working with our fishermen to, to make sure that the impact that we're having isn't something that's going to have long-term impacts. And of course, this is something that's not going to happen overnight. I think just as Tracy and I get more and more involved in the business, this has been uh, going going back to my environmental science roots. That's something that I feel is really important and wanting to find a way to balance those two in terms of, okay, of course, everyone has to make a living, we have to make money, but at the same time, making sure that isn't creating negative impacts for our future generations too. I'm going to veer into some really technical questions right now when it comes to this whole fish production. Uh, and, and feel free to, you know, say you don't know, because I, 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 this is a weird question, but like, 
when I think about like tuna and salmon and all of these fishes that uh, maybe perhaps travel long distances and it takes them so much to mate, does anchovies have that sort of record of um, going from very different, far different places and and traveling around to to create more uh, to spawn off more uh, of themselves, or is it like is it is there an abundance of anchovies in the water where you won't you know run the risk of of, of running out of anchovies uh, over the years? Yeah, so I think the way that anchovies and tuna are different is that anchovies fall much lower on the food chain, right? So uh, that makes it a lot easier in terms of how much they how much they spawn, um, how many how big the population is of anchovies. For the most part, they eat phytoplankton, and they're not eating other other animals, right? So that means that because of that, there's able there's like a larger population of anchovies. So I think that you're right in the sense that they are definitely more of a sustainable fish compared to, um, I think it just depends on the pop the population of the fish, right? And in terms of what's happening, I can't say I know for sure in terms of anchovies, their, their traveling patterns. I mean, I don't think they, they don't stay in one spot. This is something that we still have to learn too, but um, they don't travel in long distances the same way that tuna do. Well, I asked this because uh, Daniel from Sunkai brought up a good point. Uh, he said that these uh, new, there's, I don't know how new the technology is, but big corporations are doing fish sauce out of, with amino acids or out of, basically it's like Petri dish fish sauce and has nothing to do with like live anchovies. And it's just flavoring and amino acids and the creation of like fish sauce tasting bottled uh, uh substitutes that are really popular in vietnam now do you uh are you both aware of this stuff i'm not this is the first yeah. that i'm hearing about it i mean i have heard of vegan fish sauce mm -hmm. right and um the creation of that but i don't think i've heard specifically about is it that um is it similar to like lab-grown meat where they're taking like fish protein and then being able to to create more of it to make fish sauce you know i don't know if it's uh, so i don't know if it's an intention to grow it in a lab or how it's made uh or if it's just sort of putting chemicals together to create a bacteria reaction in 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 bottles or in a lab uh, where you know when you think about meat in a lab it's actually like you they're growing it so we can eat it uh like uh, so it could it could be very similar to meat growing in a dish right so I don't know if their amino acids are doing that to replicate fish uh, protein and, and, and that sort of taste. Um, we need to get uh, Daniel and you all together to talk about some process of, of you know, I, I just had this wonderful um, episode released today with Daniel about uh, the, the, the process culture, the lack of process culture in Vietnam and having these details being drilled down and understood is important because he was saying that there are workers in his uh, uh, um, distillery that are eating fish sauce and they won't go to real fish sauce because they're so used to the taste of this like synthetic fish sauce. Wow. And it's mind blowing to, to hear that. 
Wow. Yeah, I think that's interesting to think about too, right? With our whole conversation about tradition and even just continuing the family business, it's interesting to think about like keeping keeping what we used to have, like these old traditions and continuing them on so that everyone is still aware of them. And I think that's what it makes me think of. It's like, how do we... Uh, how do we get people to still remember and to still enjoy those those things that we used to make in the past and that we still continue we're trying to preserve? That's that's what I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, it's interesting and it's important because now when I think about uh, fish sauce, uh, I think about I compare it to like whiskey and cheap alcohol, right? So cheap alcohol, you could buy a fifteen dollar bottle of some cheap vodka on in the market. But why is there a $1,000 uh, mezcal somewhere that's being sold? And, you know, educating the public on eating Red Boat uh, is so vital to what we do in terms of, like, keeping legacy going and tradition going. Because we don't, I don't support this idea of synthetic fish sauce being in the in the ecosystem but at the same time it's existing and you know where where do we all stand with this you know we need to if we don't protect the red boats of the world in our vietnamese culture and if we don't have these conversations then the public does not know that there is synthetic and there is like real anchovies being kept in barrows over a year and becoming real fish sauce mm -hmm. yeah i think it's interesting to think about too, because I think kind of what you're talking about with different whiskeys, right? Or even just different alcohols, there it, there lives such a spectrum of it, right? Yeah. And it's just, of course, we're all going to live together, right? And it's like, it's almost, it's almost nice too, in terms of the fact that there's so many different variations that people get that choice to pick in terms of what their preference is. But at the same time, I agree. It's how do we, how do we keep it so something as pure and um somewhat more traditional as red boat how do we keep that going and then how do we make sure that that's still preserved in the same way that maybe some of these other brands are too mm -hmm. i'm going to play around with this um even further um so when i eat chow and it's like chow long right i need to have a red boat uh go into my chow long because i need to taste the real fish sauce, the real quality, and mixing an old-fashioned and high-end whiskey in an old-fashioned uh, is for me like making you know nước mắm ngọt, which is like what you put in bánh cuốn or whatever, right? Like mm -hmm. mixed, you know, you mix it with like lime and you know peppers. It, so for me, I only use Red Boat when I know that I need to hit a, my tongue a specific way when I eat specific dishes like chow, and I need that. I need the real thing to like go into my uh, taste buds and and untarnished, untouched, raw in you know. And I want to feel like there's anchovies that were like coming from this fish sauce. Whereas when I like do my ban kung, I'm like, it's like a waste where, like in an old fashioned or whatever drink you mix uh, with like cheap whiskey. I'm wondering like, are these things that you all think about uh with your father at all or is it just production 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 sales 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 you know it, it's is it in the conversation at home uh are you referring to i guess the 
the different ways that other people might use fish sauce? Absolutely. Like, we... Yeah, absolutely. The way that it's being perceived uh, when it finally hits the market, but hits the public. Yeah. Um, it is interesting because I, I think the feedback that we get from a lot of our Vietnamese consumers is exactly what you just said. Um, they want to reserve Red Boat for either special occasions or for more of a raw application yeah. versus cooking with it um, because they think it's a waste. Um, I, it's not something that we talk about that often because it kind of is what it is. And uh, we're just happy. I think that people are using Red Boat. I don't know if you... Yeah, I think similar to what Tracy is saying, we do think in terms of how people are using Red Boat. I think it... it makes a big difference or it means a lot to us to understand how people are using mm -hmm. red boat so when we hear people mention that like okay they want to save it for special occasions of course we appreciate it because we know that means that people hold red boat to a really high regard this is something really special to them but at the same time i'd also i think for me i like to try to play around with the different ways to use red boat right so i i mean i use it for everything like when i'm cooking vietnamese food non-vietnamese food I treat it like salt, right? I treat it like every other Vietnamese person. You add some when you need more flavor. <laughs> but I think that's kind of why I like playing around with the idea of like, okay, use actually use Red Boat in Nguyen because that's when you're actually going to get more of that flavor because you're not actually, the way that I make Nguyen, maybe you heat it up with a little bit of water, but you're having like, you're not cooking with Red Boat, right? When you're making Nguyen. So in that sense, you get more of that, like that stronger Nukmam flavor. Umami. And because when I make when I taste nukyam in restaurants versus like making it at home, there's of course like a huge, huge difference, right? It's like you get more of that like deeper, savory flavor. It is more concentrated, right? In terms of that umami flavor. But I think it comes down to preference. That's something that I really like. So of course, I'm going to be using Red Boat when I make Nick Jam. And not everyone has an endless supply of Red Boat. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we get into jujitsu, which is actually what I really want to talk about. <laughs> um, no, I really enjoy this conversation about Red Boat. But I do have some more questions before we get into the jujitsu side of our conversation, because that's very important to me. Um, You've both been back to Vietnam a bunch, I'm sure. And as the newest generation of Vietnamese American business people in the world, in, in, in like modern history of Vietnamese people, what have you learned about working alongside Vietnamese people, um, your counterparts in Vietnam? BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. I 
every time we go back to Vietnam, I realize that we have a long way to go in terms of learning how to speak the language, um, starting the culture, understanding the culture and the business practices over there, because it is very different from here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in Vietnam, it's a lot about building relationships with people. Um, and when, you know, when we sit down with the employees, it's not always, we're not talking about work, you know, we're just having yeah. dinner or lunch and just kind of learning about each other's lives. So I think it's, it is different in that sense. And yeah, it, it's daunting. Every time I go back, I'm like, oh my God, how are we going to do this? <laughs> what, what, what makes it daunting? It's daunting because it, it, it seems like we cannot be successful running the operations there unless one of us or both of us are spending large amounts of time there. Like we're talking one, anywhere from one to two months at a time, which means that our lives in the U.S. would be yeah. kind bl- of put on hold. Yeah. yeah. I completely agree. Uh, I used to do business with another competitor of mine in my business, um, Weaving, and he was this older Taiwanese gentleman. And I remember so clearly wondering why he would do, I think he did 12 weeks on and four weeks off. So he would do 12 weeks in Shanghai, Taiwan in Asia, and he would come back to the Bay Area for four weeks. And this was what he did for 25, 30 years. He took over his dad's business. It was a weaving business and they had operations in Shanghai and the parent business was out of Taiwan. And I, I saw that like in my 20s, my early 20s, and I thought to myself, this is what it takes. And I really never had passion for my family business, but I remember thinking to myself, if any second generation business people have, and this is why I asked you both, it's like, that is a big commitment for an American person who has roots, business roots in Asia. That's mm-hmm. the kind of, you, and you just said it, you're, you're like, you have to spend an order of one or two months. And then wh- what, what happens to your family life in America? You we're, we're like divided into two. And I mm-hmm. saw this man do it and you know, he got through it. He made a lot of money leader in his business. But at the end of the day, are you two ready to do that? That is what keeps us up at night. Like it, it, it does though, because yeah. we, we talk about, okay, do we want to have kids? And because if we do, how would we do both run the business and raise a family? Uh, it seems impossible. And so a lot of those factors are playing into our personal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a conversation that that's very much ongoing. And it's something that we're, that we're working to figure out. I don't think we'll have the answer right now. I think um, at least right now, we're very lucky to have um, very understanding partners (laughs) of the situation. And I think in in some ways it feels like that's, that's part of the, that's part of the package, Mm -hmm. right? This is what you have to do in order to, to have this be an ongoing legacy. The good thing though, is that there's two of us so we can switch off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You, you know, um, one thing every parent knows is that kids, they just bond so much more with their mothers and not their fathers. You know, that's just the way it goes. I mean, most kids, not all kids, but I experienced that. I know a lot of parents that I know, the kids just want to be around their mothers. So 
that's a very difficult thing to to have you know in life is to have a business life that is requiring you to go back to asia and do this one or two month trek and then have like a family you know like how do you balance that it's a great question i don't know if you i don't know if you can it, yeah it, I, it's yeah i think it's ultimately we have a limited amount of time right <laughs> yeah. it, it's like it is trying to find that balance it actually makes me think of of my boyfriend who his mom was a nurse and she would repeatedly work night shift right and she wasn't available during the days so i kind of viewed i view him as an example where his parents it was actually his dad who took on a lot of that emotional labor that mostly people associate with mothers where actually he was the one taking care of the kids bringing them out doing things so the way that i i view it is it's it's possible right in terms of um having someone who understands what part of our life is of having our own business um i think it takes it takes a very um a special person <laughs> to yeah. to ride the waves with us tiffany has a much more optimistic view than i do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <the> situation <laughs> it's it's crazy you say that tracy cuz i agree i mean that's very optimistic it's a very you know i i consider myself very lucky uh looking back at my mom and i she it seemed like she was always there because she had a, a factory and we lived that inside the factory but even now i get mad thinking about like how many times she had to just go out and go to a customer's place to, to measure draperies or whatever i get like i get like emotional thinking about the abandonment of just but I think about when my mom was with me, they never even took vacations. They were always alongside my brother and I. And even mm -hmm. then I have abandonment issues. Like I got issues when I think about it, you know? I can't imagine what my son goes through because his, you know, his mother's always traveling. And, you know, in the summers, you know, she's part of the, the, the night market and never, you know, and it's, it's tough when I look at it. But I'm like, wait, they just have to grow up because this is real life, right? Yeah, it's um, one of the things that I worked on last year is uh, understanding all of these feelings. I don't know if I would call it trauma, but unresolved feelings from your childhood and how it shows up in your adult life. And I think unless you put in that work and come to that realization yeah. that it will just be negative feelings that you hold and you don't really know why. Yeah. And so being able to identify specific moments in your childhood that happened and and saying like okay that was then this is now and just having a a better understanding of why your parents operate the way they do it helps with a better a healthier relationship i would say between us and our parents now can i ask like what prompted you and in what technique did you go and do this work was there like a framework that you did a program that you did yeah so when i attended business school last year they assigned us an executive coach but actually i think it was a therapist because <laughs> one of the first things she asked me was okay what do you want to work on for this year and i without hesitation i said i want to improve the working relationship that i have with my dad wow. and she asked me to name a specific instance that where i was frustrated at work and uh, the instance was, I get really upset when my dad asks another employee to wash his car, because I think it's 
it's not right. It's not his part of his job descriptions to wash your car. And so when I shared that with my coach, she said, what are the feelings that you feel um, when you listen to your dad ask that employee that? And I said, it's feelings of embarrassment and also shame. And she said, okay, I want you to close your eyes. And I'm like, all right, here we go. <laughs> Is this actually going to work? She said, close your eyes. And how old do you think you were when you started feeling those feelings of embarrassment or shame? And I said, oh, probably around nine or 10 years old. And she was like, what do you think was happening? You know, do you have specific memories of when you started feeling shame and embarrassment? And it was crazy because I could I could clearly see it mm. in my mind. I, I signed up for a potluck at school for, to bring a dessert. And my mom had prepared uh, like a fruit cocktail. I don't know if you remember this. <laughs> she prepared a fruit cocktail with like almond jello or something. And so I remember bringing it in, setting it down on the table and just waiting for people to come by and try some. And I think one person actually tried it because everyone else is like, what? Like, what is this? <laughs> and so I just remember feeling so embarrassed. And I was like, I had to bring home basically the entire dessert because no one really ate it. And so coming to that realization of, oh, my God, you know, these are feelings that I've held with me for a long time. Wow. And the coach had me step back and say, OK, when your dad is asking this employee to wash his car, is he upset about it? Like, what is his actual reaction? And I thought, no, he's, you know, he's thinking this is just my job. So, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. You know, and I think where my dad is coming from is, well, I'm paying them. So it's not like a crazy ask. But coming from me growing up in American culture, I'm like, oh, my God, that is just ridiculous. How can you ask someone to do that for you? Wow. So just coming to that understanding and just letting things like that go, it made work much less stressful. Thank you so much for sharing yeah. that with me. I'm going to piggyback that into something that I kind of detected when after I interviewed your father. That was immediately how I detected the email that you guys sent to me. And we're not going to get into that. But the reason I knew that was because I myself have had the same feelings with my parents. And it's one of those things where why are we so embarrassed, you know, about the previous generations i already know we all know why we're embarrassed but now i think what i'm addressing <laughs> is fuck the embarrassment let's now um embrace these moments of cultural relevance because it's when i look back now i'm like I'm so proud of my mom and dad and i'm so proud of your father i really am i the episode that i did with your father i was just like my god it touches me so much because I feel like I'm talking to my my own, my own father passed away and he started something wonderful in my life. And I think when I listened to his episode, when I was interviewing him, I felt so much pride. And then when I got this email from you both, I understood immediately. I never reacted any negatively to the email. I was just like, oh my God, I, I know where this is coming from. And I wanted to address it, but we don't need to get into details, but I can I understand how you all feel about this father and um, second generation uh, issue. And I think this is like something that's really valuable for the community to know because they did so much stuff for us. And sometimes mm -hmm. it just takes a little bit of 
stepping back to kind of acknowledge it. Yeah, definitely. I think I think there's two parts to that feeling. One is you want to be accepted in the environment that you're currently in. And uh and second is that um Wow, I can't even remember my second point. But yeah, I think that has a big part to do with it is just wanting to feel this this acceptance. Yeah. My- oh, I remember now. And also, I, I think with family, it's easy to be harder on them or yeah. kind of have like higher standards. You're more comfortable. And so I think your expectations of them and willingness to voice your discontent is just much higher with family. Yeah. Uh- yeah. I remember feeling so embarrassed my mom and dad too. There's plenty of almond fruit uh, jello <laughs> stories like that in my life. Uh, but then I remember, you know, as an adult now thinking back, my father was like 5'2", he was like short and he was like, he was like a balding, bald guy. And he would like be so confident with these like interior designers who are all white ladies who are like in these elite neighborhoods, expensive neighborhoods. And he was working with them for 30, 25 years, whatever. And he never was afraid of anybody. They loved him. I mean, there was times when he would call me like from the from the bathroom of a client. He's like, you know, I don't know where I'm at, but there's like gold platinum records everywhere. And he would tell me and he would read names out like that. He's like, yeah, it's like Mary Carey or something like that. And I was like, fuck, you're at Mariah Carey's house. this would happen constantly you know or some interior designer would tell me you know your dad did this one house and and it was like these huge staircases like gone with the wind mansion and the client was like an hour late and we were just waiting around but your dad would just like sit on the staircase and just like like lounge on the staircase and it was like sheriff lee baca he's the most powerful sheriff like head of the la sheriff corrupt in the in the 90s and you know and he would just not care and he would just call out the sheriff when he walked in it's like you're late you know <laughs> these are things that we 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 don't think about yeah. you know cuz there're also men that came from this like previous world that we're not privy to right we, who knew how they grew up but they bring this sort of like this old old country charm that we don't recognize uh, too often and and here we are we're we're talking about them and how beautiful it is mhm wow Mariah Carey, impressive. <laughs> oh, they did Madonna, they did Oprah, Harrison Ford. We did so many of these, and most of the people we don't we don't even know. You know, Charles Bronson. These are people in the seventies and eighties that were massive. Uh, that you know mm-hmm. that I would never know. We'll never know because this was work that they did in the seventies and the eighties, and I was still a kid. But now let's talk about jujitsu. <laughs> who started that who got into that i started first why it was back in high school i didn't make the varsity volleyball team <laughs> so instead i was like i need to do something else. i need to figure out something else to do i think at the time i was thinking oh i'm heading off to college somewhat soon i should learn some type of self-defense i'm going to be on my own um let's let's find something I asked my cousin who does martial arts, I said, hey, do you know what would be good for self-defense? And he suggested to me either Krav Maga or Jiu-Jitsu. I think Jiu-Jitsu was much easier to find than Krav Maga. And then he recommended me an academy. So back then I remember going, I managed to bring one of my high school friends to come along with me. I don't think she realized what she was signing up for, (laughs) 
But I think one of the first impressions that I received when starting jujitsu was how welcoming everyone was and how willing people were to try to teach you new things and that how excited and passionate everyone was about jujitsu. And Tracy? So I, it was perfect timing because I had just graduated college and I was still looking for a job. So I moved back in with my parents and Tiffany and for months, Tiffany, I think was trying to convince me to do jujitsu. And I remember pulling up, uh, I was picking up from practice and the windows were completely fogged up and I could not see anything that was going on inside. And when I opened the door, you're just like greeted with this mustiness and just sweat and odor. <laughs> and I look across the mat and I'm like, holy shit, Tiffany is rolling with an adult man. Rolling just means sparring or grappling. I'm like, what the fuck is yeah. this? I, it was, it's crazy to think about because I think I forgot. I, I signed up for the adults class. I was <laughs> like 17, 18 and I was in the adults class and I was the only, yeah. I was the only female there. I was the only woman in the class and I don't know what, like what prompted me to keep going, but it was funny. Actually, I was going through my old journal entries in terms of just trying to like figure out what my mindset was back then with jujitsu. And I think uh, I noticed in my journal entries that there was actually a lot of times where I was like, oh man, like, I feel like I'm not good. Like, I'm not like any good at jujitsu. This is really frustrating. I don't like this. And I think what actually made me keep going was my instructor at the time. Um, he was like super, super encouraging. I think it's, he helped build that more welcoming environment for me. And even as like the only, te- like, like, high school girl there like he made sure that like i was taught the the techniques that like he took time out of that class to make sure that like i was following along and like still able to participate in the adult class so i think that made a big impact on me like still continuing jujitsu i've had clients friends of mine 10 years ago they were on vicodin they were hooked on vicodin they were an addict uh, they're making a lot of money. Uh, their marriage was on the rocks, and it's one man that, you know. And he said to me, uh, "I'm gonna start jujitsu." I think he was 47 at the time. It was 10 years ago, and he cleaned up it, within a year. He cleaned up Vicodin, all these vices. His marriage got better. But he said to me this, and this is something I wanted to talk to you both about today. He said and he was a businessman. He said to me you have no idea how much more your business is going to improve if you go down that journey. And I wish I took him up on it 10 years ago, but I'm 47 now. And I was like, I always thought in my head, when I'm 47, I'll do it. And that's like been 10 years. And I really said, I've, I've started a few things early in my life and I'm like, I'm good with it, but I'm going to wait for a little bit longer. And I probably will start sometime this year, next year. But how has it been? How do you think it's helped in this business journey for you both? Jiu-Jitsu is very therapeutic. And Tiffany and I, we think about work all the time. But when we step on the mats, it's time for just, you have to focus on not getting tapped out. And so you can't really think about anything else. So in that, it's very therapeutic. And I think the second way that it's really helped me is I have been doing jujitsu for a long time now. It's been probably 10 years. And during that journey, you experience times where you feel like you're the best. And then you also experience lows where you feel like you're not progressing. But eventually, 
you get through it. And so I think just having that, um, undergoing that persistence and just realizing that times will get better. And also when you're feeling those highs, you're not, it's not going to last. And right. so I think just having that level mindset of just keep going, um, really is beneficial when, when running a business. Yeah. And that's yeah. huge. That's yeah. huge. Cause it, you know, you, you know, the theory of that, we all know it, but if you're practicing that, like, on the mat a few times a week, it probably applies right into your life and business. Business is very difficult. Business is a hard thing. It's like people think that, you know, going to work nine to five and it's boring and it's hard to like stay. Business is crazy because you have to deal with some weird, you know, ups and downs and things that are just uncalled for, like in a regular nine to five job. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I think uh, I it's funny. I took a, a 10 year hiatus from jujitsu. <laughs> uh, so while while I was away going to college, uh, Tracy was doing jujitsu. <laughs> so um, ironic. I just, yeah, I just started back in October. So it's been a little over six months getting back into it. But I think the biggest difference that I've noticed in terms of the impact that it's made is having having that stress release, having that thing that's taking my mind off work because Tracy and I also live together. Yeah. So not only do we work together, we live together. So we have the opportunity to talk about work all the time. It can be on our minds all the time. So that's that one, that one time where... I get to step away and I have my mind kind of free away from the chatter. So I have a question. So you started before Tracy and your level is probably a lot less time on the mat, but do you ever roll together? And do you find that just because you started much, much earlier that, you know, you're kind of like at, in the same ballpark or is it because Tracy has actually done a lot more time and strategy and learning this thing that she is much like that much better? Oh, of course. She's, <laughs> yeah. There's no question about it. She's done what, like 10 active years of jujitsu. Wow. I've done probably two active years of jujitsu. So of course, like Tracy that, has yeah. put in the hours to make it. So every time we go together, Chase, it's, I'm basically just a little play toy for Tracy. No. <laughs> <laughs> Tiffany has gotten a lot better uh, since she started back up again. Uh, but being the older sister, when I first started, I think Tiffany had maybe a three or six month head start on me. She was kicking my ass and I was not okay with it. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, as the older child, this is not okay. <laughs> and I, I remember one of the first classes that Tracy signed up for, I, I put her in a triangle, which is a submission. And I remember thinking afterwards, I was like, I think I took way too much advantage of this situation because as the younger child, you are always trying to be better <laughs> than your older sister. So I was like, I probably shouldn't have done that, but it felt really good. Yeah, I was just going to say, how good did that feel though, right? Yeah. I think also too, Tracy and I growing up, because we were so close, we did a lot of the same things, right? So I think this is one of the first instances where um, we did some something that was that was pretty different from each other. Since I started jujitsu first, I was like, that felt like a time when I really did my own thing. So having Tracy step in and somewhat be the new, like the new person, it, it was definitely quite interesting of a scenario. And I took advantage while I could. <laughs> but at the same time, like as we kept, I was as we kept training together, we basically got to the same level mm -hmm. before um, before I left. You know, I I, I like to talk about jujitsu because I know that it's like this sort of introduction 
into the Vietnamese culture. There's quite a few of my Vietnamese friends that are doing it. And it's an introduction from a different culture, uh, Brazil or Japanese, uh, you know, a hybrid of those two cultures. And we in the Vietnamese community, uh, we have these sort of like martial arts traditions, but nothing that, you know, any MMA fighter can say, yeah, I came from Bobby Nam or whatever, you know, they can't really <laughs> say they came from anything or any dojo in the US or Vietnam that has like these traditional Vietnamese martial arts have to like supplement it with other forms to like compete in MMA, right? But that all being said, um, do you all uh, think about bringing any of this back to Vietnam with your work one day uh, at Red Boat? No, I, I have <laughs> short answer. No, <laughs> it's, I was I was in the thick of jujitsu for ten years, and it was what I did every day for. Like, I was not expecting that answer. <laughs> so many years, and now it's, like maybe you know, like let me think about no, no. Okay, so why no? It's just for me. It's just a hobby now. It, maybe in twenty years or so, um, when I'm taking a step back from Red Boat, but. Um, what this... about running that business of a, running a jujitsu that turned you off so much to say no? When you have to be somewhere mm. or you have to do something, I think it takes away the joy mm. of the actual thing that you're doing. Now I'm not running a school anymore. I'm just a student. And it's like, I look forward to going to class. <laughs> I'm not responsible for anyone's learning. It's just, I can just take care of myself and Tiffany. So <laughs> Yeah, it's it's nice. And and what made you decide to open up a school? So I, funny story, uh, my boyfriend at the time was a black belt instructor and he wanted to branch off and start his own school because he wasn't getting paid well and things like that. And so we were like, hey, you know, let's start a school. And we found a really low cost way of doing it. We had friends that subleased their CrossFit space to us. And so... That was that was the beginnings of me owning a, a school. Was it profitable? Yes, it was. Um, I think within that first year, we probably had around sixty to eighty oh, students. Shit. We had to move uh, locations within two years, maybe even less, of opening because it uh, it really blew up. And so, I think at the peak before the pandemic, we probably had around one hundred and fifty students. Okay, I, I wonder about the quality of instruction all the time. You know, you get these brands like the Gracie Family or 10th Planet with Eddie Bravo. You get all these branded places, right? And then you get places probably relatively unknown, like people renting out a CrossFit place, right? How do we know if we're getting good instruction? That, it's, it's difficult because a lot of the reviews that you see on Yelp I, I rarely see negative reviews because if that's the only school that you've been to, you don't know anything else. Yeah. Um, but I think for someone who's just starting out, I always recommend that they try out two to three different schools for at least a month because the first week they're just trying to impress you, <laughs> give you a lot of attention. But after a month or so, you can kind of get the vibes of the other students. If you like the instructor, um, some gyms work for some people and others don't. It's very different. And so you just have to find the community that that works for you. 
I think speaking to that too, it's just some people for jujitsu, they want it to be a hobby, right? That they just want it to be their fun thing. There's also other people out there that want to be world champions and they want to be there to win medals. So I think there's so many different ways to practice jujitsu, right? Either just for fun or people that are out there to have that be their profession. So finding a place that works for you and that kind of um, has what has what you're looking for makes a big difference because I think um, what Tracy ended up building um, it was a place where I think you could do both it's like you could still compete at tournaments they always they always encourage that but I think uh, Tracy did a really good job in terms of building a community and building a place where it was like you're there to have like to have friends you're there to like hang out like just enjoy your time with people and I think there's sometimes where especially with jujitsu, which can sometimes feel so cutthroat, right? It's really yeah. physical contact of a sport. It makes a big difference to have a supportive community out there just um, wanting wanting to have a good time and know that in the end, it's, it's about having fun, yeah. right? It's not like having fun versus like, okay, we're out there to win. And that's like the, we have to win at all costs. I think it's about like having the enjoyment of it that makes a big difference. You know, I can't help to think about your father in all of this. Uh, when I think about having, I have a daughter, and when I think about recognizing that she is born into a completely different generation and the sophistication of what she understands, like, I feel like I didn't understand the kind of stuff that she understood until I was like 15 or 16. But I wonder, like, when your father looks at both of you and from a jujitsu perspective, right? Like, the process of doing this for so many years, Tracy and Tiffany, you know, you've, you've been a part of this world for, do you, I don't know how to really ask this question, but do you ever think like, when you look at your father and you're like, he'll make a comment or a way of thinking or strategy and you're like, no, that doesn't work because in your mind you have this like wealth, this deep well of like practicing this sport, this tradition, that he doesn't have as a Vietnamese person or just as wherever he grew up. He just doesn't have that because it sounds very serious when I think of jujitsu people who practice this. And then you hear, because if when I think about, I reflect on my father and I, I think, well, there's plenty of times because I was a Marine and I'm like, no, that's not how we would do in the military. This is how we would think about it in the military. Is there times where you like look at your father and you reflect on maybe that jujitsu kind of experience and go, nah, that this is, this is how a serious practitioner in my world of sport or whatever would apply it to your business um, mentality. I cannot think of an instance of a learning that I've taken from jujitsu or a mindset um, and kind of disagree, use that to disagree with my dad on something. Uh, all I know is that my dad hated the fact that we do jujitsu. <laughs> Actually, both, however, both oh. our mom and our dad was were not happy that we were doing wow. jujitsu. It, it it was a combination of things. One, they thought it took away too much time, so time that we could spend hanging out with them or doing the family business. We were doing jujitsu, and second, but but when he found out that Anthony Bourdain did jujitsu, that changed everything. <laughs> so. <laughs> That is so funny, you know, and and I think the 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 reason I asked that was knowing that you know it's very difficult for uh, Vietnamese people, especially a Vietnamese man, to know that your daughters are practicing, you know, this sport. Yeah. I also I'm trying to think. Has he watched either of us compete? I don't know if yes. he's. 
I can't remember. He's yeah. watched. I know for sure that him and mom attended one of my matches. And my my mom is came to a few, but I remember there was one. It was kind of a big deal because there was you were up on a stage, everyone got oh, to walk right. out. And I invited my mom to come. And then when I got done with the match, I was like looking for my mom and I couldn't find her. And then she was outside. She was like, Tracy, I couldn't watch it. Oh shit. <laughs> But yeah. it's because it's, it's like, scary. it's scary, yeah. right? It's a, it's a big contact sport. The whole idea of jujitsu is you're trying to submit the other person, right? So I think it was hard for our mom to see that because it's, she cares about us. We're still her kids. So she just wants to see that we have, we're, we're taken care of, or like, yeah. you know, that we're safe. So <laughs> of course she's going to have a hard time watching us compete. Yeah. The same thing happened actually when, uh, we started climbing too. We told my mom that we took a lead climbing class, which is when you actually clip in. So you you don't start clipped into the wall. You eventually climb up and you clip yourself in as you go up. So when we showed her that video of us practicing falls for a lead climbing, she's like, do not show me that again. <laughs> she's like, please do not show me that. Um, so there's been multiple instances where we've put our mom through the ringer in terms of the stuff that we do. <laughs> I'm so proud of you both as a community member, you know, in the Vietnamese community, I'm very, very proud of you. I can't imagine how proud your mom and dad must feel of the accomplishments that you two have gone through. Yeah. It's funny because sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but <laughs> you know how it is. It's yeah. just like, it's uh let me, I'll share a really cute story. So the, when Tiffany and I were in our Aoyais for that event, we sent photos to our parents because like, oh, look how nice we look. And her mom did not say one positive thing. <laughs> However, when we got back to work, one of our coworkers, they were like, by the way, um, your mom was very excited. She ha she ran me over from where I was at to show me the photos and just like, oh, look how beautiful they look. But she did not say that to us. <laughs> so. What yeah, it, that was really no. touching because I think at times we forget. We're just like, oh, gosh, why can't you just say one nice thing? They, <laughs> they are saying the nice they things. They are saying the nice things, just not to us. <laughs> <laughs> I, what is that all about? You know what? I think it's also, I mean, it might be a cultural thing, right? I don't know. It, it's like showing that type of emotion. It feels like, me. I mean, it, maybe it just didn't happen in the family, right? Everyone has different ways of showing affection. Yeah. Um, and I just don't think that's necessarily one way that's that's um, common for our parents. And I think that's also part of just accepting the way that your parents yeah. are. Yeah. They have different ways. I think another really cute story with our mom too is she just she just remembers the stuff yeah. that we want, right? There, there's this common thing where we say we want something and then suddenly it appears, yeah. right? So I think that that type of thoughtfulness and that type of care shows mm. up differently, but it's in the end, it's still, you know, love and affection. It could be two things, I think. Sometimes um, it's a muscle that they haven't really conditioned yet, right? It's just really awkward to compliment your, your kids. It's just really difficult to do. And then it's at the same time, it's hard for me to, I could never say, I love you to my mom. Yeah. Very yeah. difficult thing to do. And then I think the second thing is like they think, or this cultural way of looking at like, if I give you praise, you'll stop the improvement right there. You just don't get better. That's very Vietnamese, I think. Um, yeah. So there's two things that are working against the, 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 <laughs> the praising. Definitely. What, what possibly could she not? 
approve of with the you two were beautiful at the event that we all went to what what could she possibly not you know what what was it no i think it was more like um i think she's oh she has a lot of opinions yes, right that's so what it that's, is. It's, it's not even like she it's not I, I i don't want to give the impression that she gave negative things yeah well she was just like she's like oh your arm like the the fabric is kind of folded instead of you know she's like oh it's not sitting kind of weird you know so i think it's, it's things like that where it's just observations yes. right we get our mom's just completely unfiltered thoughts <laughs> when she first sees those pictures. So it wasn't anything like too negative. And of course it's like, oh, how much did that cost? It's of course like the second question, but uh, yeah, so nothing like truly negative, but just unfiltered yeah. thoughts is what we received. <laughs> well, both of your Aoyais were fire. They were amazing. Um, can we give it up to the designer who did it? Tywin. Tywin. Yep. None other than the Tywin. <laughs> Shout out to Tywin. Beautiful guys. Thank you both of you so much for today. Um, we probably will be revisiting year after year with both of you from the Vietnamese podcast to, the, to Red Boat, the family. And um, I, you know, I want to track this for the next hundred years. Hopefully, you know, we we'll see where we are all headed. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Ken. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate both of you. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.